Let us pray. Our loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be the ones you have for us. Amen. It is so good to be back at Northminster Baptist Church. Someone asked me how long it has been since I last stood in this pulpit. Not enough fingers. One of the many things that I carry with me from this place is your tagline, every member a minister. So many people in this community of faith ministered to me when I was here, and some of you continue to serve as the go-to persons that see me through the unexpected twists and turns of life. So this is an important place for me, and it's good to make new friends here as well. I do, however, have one small complaint. By way of a long explanation, as a few of you may recall, I once pulled up to that parking lot right out there in an old beat-up pickup truck, eager to be your new associate pastor for students and community, with little more than a map in my hand and a couple of bags of belongings in the back. A few items stuffed in trash bags, if I remember correctly. I think Mark and Rebecca Wiggs felt sorry for me because they generously let me live with them until I received a few paychecks. But then one sad day, they gently asked me over dinner, so what are your plans? <laughs> My life in their home seemed pretty good to me, so I said, what plans? Around this time, others of you seemed to sense that it was time to mention to me, again in a polite southern way, that ministers sort of need suits, and uh, I might want to visit this establishment called The Rogue. The resulting purchases are lined up in my closet to this day. There's the fall suit, the winter weight suit, the spring suit, the summer suit, and the wedding funeral suit. But here's my complaint. Every single one of these suits that some of you suggested that I needed to purchase has shrunk. I recognize the pulpit's not really the place for consumer complaints, but buyer beware. So when you host my friend Stan Wilson as your guest preacher in a few weeks, his complaint may be that I looked up the gospel reading for the two available dates being mentioned to both of us and quickly confirmed my willingness to be with you this morning, leaving it to him to preach the other text on the other day. So I think it's best if I get out ahead of Stan in this brewing ecclesiastical controversy by saying it's true. I grabbed this date because the story of the ten lepers has always intrigued me. As you know and just heard again, Jesus heals ten lepers and only one returns to say thanks. So yes, it's a story about the, the importance of living a life of gratitude one senses that there is so much more to this story. Plus, you did not bring me down all the way from Boston to deliver a message you've likely heard many times before. That wouldn't be fun. And I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I tend to feel some sympathy for the all-too-human characters in most stories, like these oft-maligned other nine, rather than the protagonist. The developmental stages of my adult life often seem to go something like the following. In my teens and 20s, I wanted to save the world 
In my 30s and 40s, I wanted to save myself. More recently, I've started thinking the trick might be to save the world from myself. <laughs> Therefore, the really interesting question is the one posed by Jesus towards the end of our text. But the other nine, where are they? There are many plausible theories, but Luke, as our narrator, leaves a clue dangling for us. The one who returns to thank Jesus is a Samaritan, and the other nine presumably are not. Luke sets the stage by informing us that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. So some background information. Although the people of Samaria, the Samaritans, were Israelites due to variations in ancestry and religious practices, they were viewed as outsiders by the Jews of Galilee, the Judeans, which is why Jesus refers to them as foreigners in our text. Outsiders and foreigners were apparently the nice terms that found their way into our Bibles as terms such as half-Jews or more bluntly half-breeds or even Gentiles were also used. In fact, the Samaritans were so despised that the common practice at the time was to travel south to Jerusalem by crossing the Jordan River many miles to the east, rather than taking the shorter direct route through Samaria. You know, kind of like driving from Memphis to New Orleans by way of Alabama. See, I still know my way around. <laughs> so to understand the story, we must recognize from the outset the leper who will return to Jesus is double marginalized, shunned not only to having a disease of the skin that is feared to be contagious, but also as a result of belonging to a scorned ethnic group. Our story is one of many in the Gospels that reminds us that Jesus, rather than avoiding such places, is attracted to borderlands where privileged people are unable to avoid rubbing elbows with outcasts. Now it's interesting to try to bring this setting to life by thinking of contemporary analogies. Jesus travels to the border of the US and Mexico is a one example which seems to come to the minds of many commentators. But if we're true to the text, here's what it is also saying that doesn't often get repeated. It's the migrants rather than the US citizens who would respond appropriately to Jesus. How about this one, closer to home? Jesus takes a circuitous route from Eastover to the Mississippi State Capitol by way of Stupot Community Services. And it's the guest and the soup kitchen line, rather than the volunteers from a congregation such as Northminster, who recognize and praise him. I know, you were glad to see me, but now I've clearly gone from preaching to meddling. But the connection between Jesus and the marginalized is undeniable and permeates the Gospels, especially in Luke. So one lesson highlighted again in our text is that if we want to be followers of Jesus, we must seek to be in community with people marginalized by society. But here's the real kicker, at least for me, not because we can help or even worse, save such people, but because they are more likely to understand things that those of us with more privilege often can't seem to comprehend. Maybe that's what's going on with the other nine. 
You've likely seen or even participated in one of these presentations on dominant versus marginalized groups that are increasingly being utilized to help organizations become more equitable and inclusive. Based on identity categories such as race, ethnicity, gender, gender expression, sexual orientation, mental and physical abilities, socioeconomic status, etc., we either belong to the groups that are viewed as the norm in society or the ones that are often discriminated against both subtly and sometimes not so subtly. The point is to challenge people of dominant identities to recognize their privilege and their responsibility to be allies to people with mar marginalized identities. But I wonder if these exercises don't expose our spiritual challenges as well. I know these workshops are not always comfortable, such matters are often more complicated than either or categories can capture, and besides, some people in these dominant identity groups have achieved some measure of status in society because they've also worked hard. Believe me, I know, because I check the dominant box in almost every category. But rather than being resistant, maybe we should be asking ourselves whether our gospel reading is not trying to tell us that Jesus was leading a form of these trainings over 2,000 years ago. It's really not such a reach to interpret Samaritan as a metaphor for whatever identities are out of favor in any given society, whatever groups of people are likely to feel that they don't belong. And they seem to be the people Jesus often seeks. The problem with privilege it's not that there is anything inherently wrong with any of these dominant characteristics. That's decidedly not the problem. The problem with privilege is that when society centers our identities, it makes it harder for us to recognize our need for anything beyond ourselves. Stated another way, when everything is about us, it makes it more difficult to make room for God and others. Stated yet another way, it's hard to believe in anything bigger than ourselves when we're being led to believe that there is nothing bigger than ourselves. The spiritual life Jesus is offering is hard to accept because there's this voice reverberating in our heads that is incessantly screaming one word, me, 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 me. And society further amplifies that voice, at least for some of us. I'm not suggesting that the spiritual life does not take some effort, but when we are able to recognize and rely on a power greater than ourselves, doing the things that God would have us to do gets easier. The hard part is getting ourselves out of the way. Maybe it's not about us. Maybe we're special because God loves us, we're part of what God is doing in the world, we're interconnected with the family of God. Such a reorientation lifts the horrible anxiety of always trying to prove ourselves, always wondering if we're measuring up. It's not something we do or, or earn. That's what makes it so hard to accept. As Henry Nouwen says so eloquently on the cover of your worship bulletins, it's about opening our clenched fist so we can experience the unconditional everlasting love of God. The addiction community refers to this state as surrender, reaching that point where you recognize you can't do it on your own. But I grew up hearing that God helps those who help themselves. 
And maybe it's a useful message, but it's not the good news Jesus is offering. God helps those who know that they can't help themselves. Jonathan Walton, who I know preached here a few weeks ago, signs his emails with the message, One Love, a succinct way of saying that the love that flows from God to us makes it possible for us to extend that love to others. So what blocks this flow in your lives? What makes it hard to accept the miracle that God offers to each of you? One of the answers that I could give is that it's a privilege to have too many degrees listed next to your name, especially in a society that is nowhere close to extending equitable educational opportunities to everyone. You're prone to start thinking, however subtly, that you're smarter than others. You don't need God or anyone else. You can figure it out on your own. So when I think about our question, I picture nine Yes, white men sitting around a table somewhere in Harvard Square having a heated intellectual argument about which one of them discovered the cure for leprosy. And who gets to publish the paper in some obscure academic journal? The Samaritan in our story doesn't have the barriers that tend to come with such privilege. He is ready to believe that there might be something more, and when it comes, is ready to live a life of gratefulness for God's transformative role in his life. But there's one more puzzle left in our story. Jesus says to the Samaritan, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. But didn't Luke previously tell us that all 10 lepers had been healed? So there's a distinction being made here between being made clean or physically healed and the word used only to describe the state of the Samaritan, being made well, or as several versions translate this passage, being made whole. In short, we all know that we can be okay physically without being spiritually well or whole. Everything can, be, everything can appear to be great while we live with the gnawing sense that we are lost spiritually. Perhaps a case in point, the other nine apparently quickly returned to the mainstream of society, likely trying to convince themselves that whatever happened back there was not such a big deal. We can handle things on our own now. For the Samaritan, everything has changed. But let's not be so hard on the other nine. And let's not be so hard on ourselves. Instead, let's make space. For God to work such miracles in our own lives. May it be so.